1: We spend a bulk of our time in a very boisterous world of noise. Whether it be the constant deluge of information and chat from our email and social media, or the 24-hour news cycles with its constant announcements of breaking news, even our households can be filled with noise. And despite 40 years of mindfulness trainings, we've yet to be successful in getting beyond the noise in our own heads. Studies have shown that noise has ramped up to ever higher decibels. I believe we can all agree there exists a deficit of silence in our noise-soaked lives. And today we'll be exploring how we can lessen both the exterior and interior noise in order to be able to hear our own intuition and tune into our creative gifts with our guests, Lee Mars and Justin Zorn. Justin Zorn has served as a Senior Advisor of Policy and Strategy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. He has also served as both a meditation teacher and strategist in the US Congress, and is a Harvard and Oxford trained specialist in the economics and psychology of well being. Lee Mars is a collaboration consultant and leadership coach for major universities, nonprofit coalitions, and federal agencies. Lee and Justin are co-founders of Australia Strategies, whose purpose is to help businesses, nonprofits and leaders find creative and enduring solutions in living beyond the noise. They're co-authors of Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. Join us for the next hour as we explore the need for creative silence in a world of overwhelming noise and distractions with our guests, Lee Mars and Justin Zorn. I'm speaking with Lee and Justin from their homes by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Hi, (laughs) Lee and Justin. Welcome to New Dimensions. Thank you for having us, Justine.
2: It's a joy to be here.
1: Oh, great. I'm so glad you both could join me. You both have been very active in social policies, climate or poverty or mental health, many of these policies. And as you were really embracing all of this, you were looking for solutions. And somehow, somehow going underneath the solutions, you came to some strategy about Noise in our lives and what that means. So, I'd love for you to both share with us why noise matters.
2: Thank you, Justine. As you mentioned, we have both worked in issues like climate and economic justice and violence prevention. And in our work in all these fields, we've faced so many setbacks and such feelings of despondency about the state of the world and all the suffering. And we both felt this strong intuition that the answer might not come always through more thinking and talking. We need the spaces to tune into deeper intuition so that we could find deeper, more generative, more creative solutions. Because as you mentioned, the noise of the world is rapidly, arguably, exponentially increasing the auditory noise, the informational noise, and the internal noise. So we've been following this intuition and studying what it would mean to bring forth more silence so we could find more creative solutions. And that's really what this book is all about.
3: We started by um, writing an article for Harvard Business Review exploring these these ideas that were very new to us. And initially, we thought we were talking primarily about auditory silence, you know, just external quiet. Um, as we got into our conversation, started speaking with some of the world's top neuroscientists, politicians, artists, a Grammy-winning opera singer, a heavy metal front man, a man incarcerated on death row for a crime he didn't commit, all kinds of people of all all types of people devoted to silence, we asked them what the deepest silence they'd ever known was, and they pointed us to experiences which, to our surprise, were not always auditorily quiet, although they might be. But these were moments of births and deaths and moments of awe, moments in deep nature, or running the perfect line through roaring rapids, or in the forest filled with cicadas, the song of cicadas, but moments where they might feel an internal silence, a deep internal silence, as well as a connection to something bigger than themselves.
1: I think that uh, you've used some examples of people in sports, like there might be a basketball game and roar of the crowd, but somebody might be in the zone as they describe it. And it's like, there's all this noise, but yet it's profound uh silence at the same time. You talk about it in the book, about we're colonized, our our attention gets colonized, our and, and you call it pristine attention. So I'd I'd love for you to talk about what is pristine attention and how is that different from just our normal attention.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that experience of being in a place that might seem auditorily loud, like we describe a 14-year-old middle school basketball star who's in a place where even if the crowd is roaring and even if the sneakers are squeaking, he's in this moment of pristine attention where he can't ruminate about himself he can't be consumed with thoughts like, how am I doing? What's really going on here for me? How do I look? How am I performing? Because if those thoughts pop up, he loses the moment. He loses that pristine attention as you're describing it. So it really comes down to the question, you know, what is silence? What is this pristine attention? And as Lee mentioned at first with our Harvard Business Review article, we started exploring the importance of auditory silence. But as we interviewed all these people Lee described, we started realizing there's more to it than that. Now at one level, this silence is the absence of noise. And that's to say it's the absence of unwanted distraction, unwanted interference in our ears, on our screens, and in our thoughts. And you use that word, you know, colonize. So much in the world is colonizing our attention. So much in the world right now is making claims on our consciousness, advertising the demands of a constant connectivity workplace, and the silence is the place where nothing is making claims on our consciousness. So we could be in a place that might seem auditorily high decibel, the sound of the rain or the sound of birds chirping or a waterfall or whatever it might be, even the sound of music and dance. But we're in a place where no one's making claims on our consciousness. We're in this place of presence. There's nothing interfering with our perception or our intention. So, so we say that there's a deeper meaning to silence than just the absence of noise. In all these interviews with these poets and neuroscientists and even politicians and business people, we found that this common thread, Justine, was that the silence could also be more than the absence of noise. It could be a presence unto itself.
1: I ran across a study that Johann Hari did. He's the author of Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. And he described this incredible study that Hewlett Packard did they split their workers into two groups and one group of the workers were told to just do their work and they're not going to be interrupted. And the other group, the second group, they were interrupted with texts and emails and other interruptions. And then afterwards they did an IQ test of these two groups and what they found that the people who were being interrupted tested 10 points worse on the IQ test than the people who were not interrupted. So their conclusion was like being constantly interrupted actually lowers mm. our intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's what you talk about in the book. I mean, uh, it lowers our ability to be creative. It it lowers our ability to come up with the kind of solutions that need to be. Uh, that we need in this time. Um, so any any comments on, on that particular study and how it goes along with the work that you have found? Yeah,
3: his work is is phenomenal. We really appreciate that book. And it does feel like we're sort of all addressing these issues from maybe a different doorway, or but in this case, a pretty similar one. Our attentional capacities are maxed out by this life that we're saturated in noise. We, our ability to process information has not increased. It, it, you know, for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, not significantly anyway. And yet the demands on our attentional networks is ever increasing and unrelentingly so. So we are, we are beyond maxed out. Our attention is way more like molasses when we switch from something, one thing to another than it is water. It doesn't instantly shift. There's a cost. So this all makes sense to me what you're describing. And that's part of why we looked to um, the neuroscience of what's happening here in terms of noise and silence and distraction. And we did look to a middle schooler in particular, and we talk about Jamal, because he is in this state of life and many of your listeners will remember all too well, (laughs) there's a lot of internal noise going on, a lot of distraction, right? It's just part of that age, part of that developmental stage but still he can find that pristine, uh, quiet, that place where there's no space for self-referential thought. This is using the thinking of Csikszentmihalyi and his flow states, which you were referencing, Justine. When we get into that state of flow, our attention focuses, and there's no extra attention left over to be so ruminative and be so distracted. We focus in on what it is, the task at hand, and we can feel this blissful quiet.
1: This is a universal experience. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars, and they are the co-authors of Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. And if you want to know more about their work, you can go to the website, astrayastrategies.com, and that's spelled A-S-T-R-E-A Strategies.com. or you can get there through the New Dimensions website newdimensions.org I'm Justine Willis-Toms you're listening to New Dimensions I'm here with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars. I want to spell her name though. It's L-E-I-G-H, Lee Mars, M-A-R-Z. So just to give you a visual or auditory, <laughs> auditory help with uh, the spelling of her name and Justin Zorn Z-O-R-N. So here we are. One of the things that I remember in reading your book and your work. I remember this had to do with schools that were in lower income areas. And you brought out an example of kids who were in a schoolroom that had an elevated subway track next to their school classroom. That's right. And talk about this and, and the general idea of these kinds of auditory interruptions in our lives.
2: Sure. Thank you, Justine. Yeah, this was a groundbreaking study in the 1970s. An environmental psychologist named Arlene Bronzeft found that the reading test scores of Manhattan middle schoolers whose classroom faced this high decibel elevated subway train lagged up to a year behind those of students in the quieter classrooms on the opposite side of the building. And we found in our research that lower income areas tend to be exposed to much higher decibels of noise, of of sound and stimulus outside. And one thing we explore in this book is this idea that noise begets noise. And by this, we mean that auditory noise, these kinds of distractions, often lead to internal noise. So when a student, for example, is paying attention to a reading lesson, and that subway train comes by, their thinking is interrupted by this bottom-up stimuli that comes in and breaks the chain of thought, and then leads to all sorts of internal noise. Maybe the student was paying attention, but when there was that interruption, the attention was broken, and it takes time to get back on track. And we're seeing this all over the place in an age when we're receiving constant pings and dings of cell phones and smartwatches and, and and every kind of device. But one of the core ideas we, we brought forward in this book in, in setting up this idea of noise is that noise, this unwanted distraction, exists in our ears, on our screens, and in our heads. All this noise that's distracting us with, from what we're attempting to perceive. And what we are intending in our lives,
1: you know, I would say too. It there's no um, space for what I would call wonder and wander. You know, to just let ourselves wonder and wander, and I believe that that people their creativity comes from that kind of space. And it's unique to each one of us because we bring our own life experience to it. If we just kind of relax and allow ourselves to wander. And and so that's a little different than being in a classroom and paying attention. I would say in, in that case, there there's a real cost there. I think it's called um, switch cost effect, you know, that, you can't just get right back to it, to to that which you are concentrating on. So, I'm I'm kind of pulling in a lot of different threads here. So, any any comments and and what your experience is with this?
3: Yeah, our professional experience is that part of what we're really interested in is those folks who are working on really complex issues like climate change or like removing toxic chemicals out of our products. If they come at it the way they have been coming at it, typically, you know, we're in sort of a cement building with fluorescent lighting and we're sharing a lot of PowerPoints and data and we just keep doing that, we kind of keep drowning in that environment. Um it's they will they will be the first to admit that maybe we're not making any progress, certainly not on breakthrough thinking, really game-changing thinking on these complex issues. So we love to Get away with them to, um, a natural environment to be connected to the thing, the place, uh, the environment we're trying to protect, for example, and, and build in some downtime, build in some time to rest. Actually, a lot of these folks are driving so hard on this very important issue that they're never getting any genuine rest. Take a nap, for goodness sake. Get a good meal in you. Walk out in the redwoods. Feel the silence, be with the silence, and then allow for some, some new ideas to emerge. You know, there's a reason why we hear about those, those great ideas that come to us in the shower. We believe this we sort of away from our devices. We're in a situation where we really there's not a lot of unwanted distraction taking place. And then, aha, eureka! There's the idea coming through. So in our own lives we can explore this, we can experiment with this and see what's true for us. I like to like when you get really stuck, we've gotten stuck on writing to just walk away for a little bit. we get in a in a dip, we're in a difficult heated meeting, the Quakers take a break in that at a little just a moment of pause. Silence can infuse the space with solutions, creativity, connected connectedness to our deeper intention and reason for gathering.
1: That's beautiful, beautiful. I'm I'm also reminded of something you mentioned in your book. It's about the GDP, the gross um domestic product. Yeah, and it measures the health of our economy. And you mentioned how, okay, uh, a pristine forest isn't included in that. But if you cut down a pristine forest, they add that to the economy. And so you you talk about how. Silence gets implicitly priced at zero. It is not part of the gross domestic product. Silence is not included. So what do you have to say about that? And what is your research showing you about that? Mm.
2: Thank you for sharing this, Justine. It really is a marker of how we as a society measure progress because we use GDP to measure almost everything that matters at a societal level. How is a president doing? How is the business cycle doing? Are we in a recession? Are we in a boom time? Are people's living standards improving? But implicit in the idea of living standards, our quality of life, is that we're really happier, we're healthier, we're doing better. And as you mentioned, Justine, GDP doesn't measure the value of that forest unless we chop it down. But likewise, GDP doesn't measure the value of our attention unless we chop it up and commoditize it as eyeballs on a screen that translates to revenue dollars for advertising. Or, for example, that translates into productive activity in the workplace. You know, time logged on in the office or answering emails at 11 p.m., whatever it might be. And yet, most of the value I know I personally receive in my life is time in nature, time with my little kids rolling around and not doing anything economically productive, listening to the birds, enjoying the forests. So the way we're measuring progress as a society has the deck stacked all toward this, this conception of progress as more industrial production, but also more mental stuff. And this is something new that we bring forward in the book, building on these environmental economics arguments about GDP for many years. This also pertains to human attention, how we spend our time, how we order our lives.
1: That just reminds me, you you bring up a wonderful person who, Andrew Yang, who ran for uh, president, the 2020 presidential candidate, and he said if he got elected, he would he would issue he would start a Department of Attention Economy. I love that. Because he was concerned, and I think that you all are concerned with uh, uh, how our attention is being colonized, it's being commoditized, it's being manipulated, traded. Even when you mentioned, Lee, about being in the shower, I think that they've developed some sort of device that you can stay connected even in your shower, I mean, for God's sake, so they can they can grab your attention and and then they they make money on that every time they grab our attention. Uh, So, wow, here here we are. How how can we then I guess the whole benefit of work is to be in those moments of playing with our kids and. And that those joyful moments, isn't that the whole idea of how why we're working? <laughs> it's certainly our idea.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's great to be engaged in great work, but it's also to have those precious moments to be in wonder, to share silence even, not just to have it on our own, but to share it as family members.
2: Yeah. Just well, it to... brings up, too, that 100 years or so ago, John Maynard Keynes, the legendary economist, predicted that because of improvements in technology, that would mean improvements in productivity of work, we would all be able to spend the vast majority of our time in leisure. And it seems like the opposite happened. (laughs) But part of this comes to a question of, you know, what is leisure? What is this time and pristine attention and silence where nothing is making claims on our consciousness? You know, what you were saying, Justine, about the connection, the you know constant connectivity, even in the shower these days. One thing we explore in the book is, is why. At one level, you know, it is the nature of market forces to constantly want more production for GDP, but we feel it's also something deeper than that. We have a chapter in the book called Why Silence Is Scary. And we look at this idea of why silence is so uncomfortable for a human being. And we treat this with respect. We don't just say, "Oh, of old, why are we, you know, so averse to silence?" For us, Justine, it's really this idea that, you know, the nature of life, the nature of survival and producing what we need, the requirements of thinking ahead, Mean that silence is scary because it's a time we're not being productive, per se, as we often think of it. But silence is also scary at a deeper level. Nietzsche spoke of the horror vacui, the horror of the vacuum, that when we encounter the space where there's nothing occupying our attention, it's frightening because that's the time when we really have to face ourselves. There was a study at the University of Virginia recently where undergraduate students had the option to sit alone in a room without their cell phones or any entertainment or be shocked by a painful electric shock. And after 15 minutes, most of the students decided to shock themselves with a painful electric shock rather than sit in silence, which sounds like a commentary about, you know, Gen Z or digital native generations, but it's really not. This is something that goes back millennia, and we, we explore this in the book, why silence is so scary, but how if we get through this fear and aversion to silence, what we find on the other side is what you spoke of, Justine, in the, in the beginning of this segment, is intuition, is greater fulfillment, is greater humility, and greater wholeness.
1: Yes, and I, I, I know that you mentioned in the book, uh, one of the scariest places in any filmmaking is when it's silent and we're just sitting there and there's no music or anything else. And that's the most terror producing moment in any movie. I'm here with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars and they are the co-authors of Golden, the power of silence in a world of noise. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars, and they are the co-authors of Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. I'm reminded of a collective silence that many of us felt and were part of. And this was a moment after the murder of George Floyd. And it was Sheena Mahortra. Uh, it was televised, and so many of us saw this and were able to be with her. And she called for all of us to relive that moment of of the nine and a half minutes when the police officer, I think his name was Shavin. Had his knee on the neck of uh, George Floyd, and we all were in a collective moment of nine and a half minutes of silence. Mm. And there is an example of where silence really support positive social change because it went beyond our our thinking brain. It, it, it we held something in our body. Mm-hmm. That, that was very profound. Um, so tell me about that moment for y- you both and and what your experience was of that.
3: Well, that really was a time when we were um, in the depths of, of exploring silence and the writing of this book, the manuscript writing of this book um, at the beginning of COVID and another unexpected silence uh, or at least shift in the soundscape for many of us. Um, It really is part of what brought us to wanting to, to, um, address this topic head on and speak with Sheena Maholtra in particular. And, uh, she, as she described her experience being at, she's describing a Black Lives Matter, uh, protest. And I went to many of these as well and where they did observe that nine and a half minutes. And what we love about her story there is that she talks about how in that nine and a half minutes, which In her minds felt like an eternity, but also, you know, we could say nine and a half minutes goes by pretty quickly (laughs) and, and other times, but there was something timeless about this as it was shared, as they were contemplating what was happening, as we're contemplating that amount of time for George Floyd in that moment, his fear and his terror, as she contemplated what it was like for all the people surrounding her and how it was to, like, we're in this together, we're doing this together. But then as she saw small children, particularly Black boys with their mothers and how existential this threat must be for them. But then in the silence, she even could expand her compassion and empathy out beyond that to even the police officers who were there and even think about how it was for them. So she really demonstrated for us deep empathy and compassion that is available in silence and how that is magnified when it's shared like in such an environment. So for us, it was extremely um, reassuring. It's just sort of keeps hitting, we keep getting reminded how beautifully, how unexpectedly perfect silence can be in terms of meeting the most, those moments how it can transform them and open something that didn't seem at all possible prior to it's an oceanic experience when you hit that kind of yeah a field
2: and and for us this exploration this part of the book get gets to something that's so relevant in the culture right now I mean for sometimes it feels like the world is on fire so what good is silence and we know there's this trope of silence is violence. Silence is complicity and complacency in evil, and we honor that. We agree, because the refusal to speak in the face of injustice is an injustice in itself. But that kind of silence is a silence of censorship. It's a silence of apathy and withdrawal. And as we explore the world today, we find that so much of that apathy and withdrawal is a function of the noise. When we're caught up in watching reality TV and paying attention to owning Twitter and dominating the cable news cycle, we're caught up in these cycles of noise. And it's hard to really hear another person. And it's hard to really discern where the wisdom is for skillful action to make things better.
1: Exactly. You talk about silence as a presence Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's an immersive silence, uh, that that nine and a half minutes was an immersive silence. And it, it was a silence, not of lack of noise, it was a silence that also encompassed the kind of presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, please speak, uh, speak mm-hmm. to that. Yeah,
3: um, Gordon Hempton describes that type of silence as time undisturbed. And it also as the think tank for the soul. That's the kind of presence we turn to where we don't get into the hard definitions of that kind of silence, but instead turn to all these beautiful, wise people who bring in their definitions. So another one is Peer Shabda Khan, a Sufi teacher and mystic who tells us silence is not silent at all. It's teeming with life and joy and ecstasy, but it's quiet of thoughts of the
1: self. It's quite a foolishness. I, I I love that. I love that. And that um I'm reminded of a very positive um, moment that I had. um because I know you ask in the beginning of the book, have you ever experienced silence, true silence? Mm-hmm. And it made me think of a moment that was very, very positive. And it was um in two thousand and three when uh, Jennifer Berzon uh, did, uh, it was called Praises for the World. Uh, it was a performance. I think it was the second time she had done this. I was with a group of women friends, and we were in the Scottish Rite Auditorium in Oakland. And that's an interesting place because it's not just set as a stage where you're on one side looking up as an audience at the stage. The audience is in a horseshoe around the stage. Mm. And she had us chanting praises for the world, this very simple chant, all day long. So the audience was chanting the entire day while 60 uh, performers and artists and, and just incredible people performed all day long and so this went on for the whole day and at the very end without any direction without anybody saying okay now we're going to whatever there everyone in the auditorium 1500 of us were in profound silence not even a cough mm-hmm. and that went on i believe for five minutes. I mean, it wow. went on for a long time for a group of people to do that. And it it changed my life. I mean, it was so profound to feel that shared space of silence. And I know you talk about that in the book, uh, that shared silence can be uh, magnified in mm-hmm. some way. And, and it's very, very helpful to us as human beings to have those moments. Uh, any any comment or any idea so many. Yeah, there's it,
3: this reminds me of a, a quote, I'll maybe paraphrase here by Susan Sontag that great art leaves silence in its wake. It's one thought that comes to mind. And I love those moments after being together and building and the music and the sound and then a shared experience. And that the only response is the only like the, the best response possible. The best way to honor that is to be in silence together and that no one even wants to move or breathe. And we had this a very similar story in the book with love for you all to check out uh, Joyce Di the Grammy winning opera singer, who did this three-year tour of peace and just looking at peace in, in a time of turmoil and time of chaos. And after that final note. Uh, this three-year tour that ended in washington dc that justin was le- lucky enough to be in you can speak to that too her final note after that that experience of time undisturbed time suspended just something where no one even wants to move and the uh, you know we want applause but we don't want to break the silence that kind of feeling there is something
1: transformative to those moments and I think that she actually set it up, though, from the very beginning, didn't she, Justin? I mean, it wasn't as if everybody came to the concert and 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 then it, the concert began and the noise started or whatever. It was different. She started it differently, didn't she?
2: She was working intricately with the silence and sound as this as this intricate ballet so that people could be together and really feel. Because as Lee mentioned, this was about the political situations and about the division and violence in the world. And how do we feel our way to new solutions rather than just thinking about it through the beauty of the art and also the silence, the togetherness. Because in our society today, Justine, in a secular society, in a large society, technologically advanced, there's not a lot of spaces where we come together and feel richness of presence together. It's why some people go to meditate together. It's why people go to religious services together. But as a society as a whole, it's a special thing, like what you're describing, to be in a space where we can feel deeply, even with people that we don't know. I think of, uh, you mentioned, I had some experiences teaching meditation on Capitol Hill in Congress. And I think about those times, you know, for me, um, being on the Democratic side of the aisle, there were also Republicans there who came and sat with the Democrats coming from progressive offices, you know, people coming from Wall Street attorneys backgrounds and progressive peace office backgrounds, people all sitting together in the silence, And it wasn't so much the power of any meditation practice, so much as this kind of alchemy that happened in sitting together, all of us, 40 or so people in a small room on the campus of the U.S. House of Representatives, together in silence. And one thing I noticed, Justine, was at the beginning of that time, sort of like at the beginning of that opera show, you felt people coming in with all their different thoughts and worries and preoccupations. And after 20 or so minutes in the silence, you could feel the energy of the room. You could feel people's heart rates. You could feel all of it turn, not just to something quiet, but something more harmonious together. So we don't feel like silence is a panacea to solving all the problems we face in these times, but we do feel like it's a prerequisite.
1: Well, well said, well said. And I'm... Uh, I, I know that in those moments, that kind of silence is expansive, and we might come into that room kind of contractive and fearful and, you know, we got to get the work done and everything, and then it allows kind of an expansion of of consciousness rather than a contraction. We'll talk about that in more in just a moment, but I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars, and they are the co-authors of Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. And if you want to know more about their work, you can go to their website, astrayastrategies.com, A-S-T-R-E-A astreastrategies.com strategies.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars, and we're talking about the power of silence, the expansive power of silence. It can expand our consciousness. And I want to talk about um, three important takeaways in your book that just, I mean, I just got so excited about these. And I've already started writing about them. And the three takeaways that I pulled out are that we all have a sphere of influence. In other words, no act of goodness is too small or too large. And the second one is um, we all have something that we can control, and then there are things that we can't control. And so, to know the difference and yet to move with that which we can control. So that's the second one. And the third one I love is to look for signals. Um, these are these messages that come to us. How, how do we stay awake to these messages that are just imperative uh, in being effective to fulfill our soul's assignments, so to speak, to, to bring our personal North Star and to focus so that we can give our gifts. So those three things, I'd love for the two of you to comment on those. I'll start us off the primary teacher
3: in this whole segment of the book where we're looking at what we can do in our lives as individuals and families and workplaces and then broad, more broadly as a society. Our primary teacher is Jarvis J. Masters, who's the man that I mentioned to you early on, is incarcerated on death row in St. Quentin for a crime he didn't commit. Um, so he is in a cell for 23 hours out of a 24-hour day, and yet he is our primary teacher of finding that sphere of control. He taught us that when we asked him about noise and quiet, now let me just back up to say, San Quentin is one of the loudest. Auditory environments you've ever heard when we're on the phone with him, it's a cacophonous backdrop. Um, just lo fi radios, men hollering for no apparent reason at all hours of the day and night. Yeah, boomboxes, all kinds of things, but also the just the metal and the mesh wire and the cement, it's just bouncing all around. So it's quite a, a state. But then there's also the in, the internal anxiety of being on death row, of being lined up for a state-sanctioned state, state sanctioned death and not knowing about your status of your case or your appeal or whatever the case may be. So it's a loud environment. And yet even still, um, even with that environment and little control over his time and when he does what he does, he still found that he had the most control by quieting his response to the noise. So if he could quiet his response to the noise, he could find his way to quiet. And right now, and I just spoke with him the other day, we're kind of like, you keep getting deeper and deeper in these conversations. There's a level of the noise being present, that's a comfort to him. And he'll still find still the little pockets of silence that live right beside it. That, In a way, if, if that environment goes all quiet, it's alarming, right? Actually, the guards may be doing the search or there's something going wrong, something going. So there's a level of the noise being a comfort and he can still find deep silence where he's written two books in prison, (laughs) working with the noise and the quiet. So he teaches us what's in our sphere of control and being honest about that, what's in our sphere of influence, that circle outward, which we might find things that we do alone or more, a little bit more in our sphere of control when we involve our families and our friends and our coworkers. It's a little bit more of a conversation and agreements, finding shared uh, agreements around that might be a little bit more in our influence and then things that are outside of our control It's best for us to just release, let go of, um, to surrender to, uh, to to do the work where we can. Would you add, Justin?
2: Well, you asked also, Justine, about these signals. And we write about signals in different respects. To share the brief story of another remarkable character, Cyrus Habib. He grew up son of Iranian immigrants to the United States, went blind when he was about eight years old learned braille, went to Columbia, Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, Yale Law School, and became the lieutenant governor of Washington State when he was in in his mid-30s. And everyone thought Cyrus was about to run for governor or U.S. Senate. He was about to make the announcement. He made an announcement that he was taking a vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience as a novice Jesuit priest. And we speak with Cyrus about his journey into this deep silence and how at one level for him, it was getting beyond the crazy auditory noise of politics, cable TV on in the office all the time, a nonstop parade of phone calls, the information of so many polls and, and political strategy meetings and this and that, Twitter debates. But what he was most interested in was finding the conditions where he could encounter internal silence. And when we spoke with Cyrus about this, he said the main reason he made this wild choice was because he wanted to develop the capacity for what he called discernment. And he talked about how he could discern the signal from the static. And the signal, he said, is what's really truly in the heart.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, yes, wow. That's that's really well well presented. It really helps us to see um, because we don't get quiet enough to really hear those signals in some ways. And and more and more we're being asked to listen to those signals because each of us, I just believe in my heart of hearts, we each have a profound creative gift to give to the world in really good ways and if we don't get still enough we're not going to hear what we need to hear mm. and and to know what gifts to give um
3: that's so well put actually in the case of Cyrus he's that's his interest is to pull back and to connect for him he would point to that place the signal comes from what is true in his heart he you know is so devoted to um, ending poverty and addressing issues like that. And you could say he was doing that in politics to a certain degree, but yet he wanted to pull back to figure out how to do an even better job, how to discern an even stronger course of action for himself. And for Jarvis, his sort of getting in pulling back from all that noise what would one anybody, most people for sure would get caught up in and all kinds of, of that noise, but that fear, and separate, um, he could separate himself from the other inmates, for example, by being in the state he's in being there innocently. Instead, he dropped into his compassion. He started to find himself interested in the other prisoners and interested in the tiny little scars that he noticed on their faces and hands and asking questions about that and starting conversations and finding ways to support these men and being a man and he's now a great um, buddhist teacher meditation teacher as well as a student of Pema Chodron uh, who he calls Mama so he found his way he found his way in that quiet and that's also what Cyrus is doing. So that's it so he can bring his gift to the world as well even in prison.
1: I'm I'm reminded of what you're you're saying there and how he is interacting with others I think there's something very, very profound when we say out loud and ask questions of each other that causes the other to feel truly seen. And then we can work within that. Uh, We can work through all sorts of problems because there's a a level of loving trust somehow when, when we feel we've been seen. And I, I, I think that's really saying a little bit of what Jarvis is doing. He's, he's seeing the other.
2: Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. And a big part of what we're exploring in this book is, of course, the auditory noise and the informational noise. But how the internal noise, and there's so much internal noise, these thoughts about the self. How are we performing? How are we doing? how these thoughts, this form of noise interferes with our perception and intention. It really is noise. But it interferes with our ability to hear and see and feel the presence and dignity of another person. So sometimes when people see, oh, this is a book about silence, they might assume it's a book about withdrawing from the world. But quite to the contrary, our hope here is to write a book about deeper connection through silence And how in a world of constant connectivity, constant conversation, there's so much denigration of our capacity to connect. Now, we say in the book that this is about taking a temporary break from one of life's most basic responsibilities, having to think of what to say. Mm. And that's so we can listen and feel the presence of another.
1: So you're saying, I think you mentioned in the book, the brain is a me network. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like a moment. Um, and I, I'm just remembering something when any of us who have used psychedelics, that we would think uh, we see all these visuals and things and, and we think the brain is really working, but actually there's less brain activity And it's it's like beyond the mean network. It's taking us into this other expansive realm that Mm -hmm. we're not thinking so much. Oh, my goodness. I'm just noticing the time. And I just we could go on and on. I thank you both so much for being with us today. It's just been an honor to have you on New Dimensions, both of you, Lee and Justin. Thank you. It's an
2: honor to be here.
1: Thank you, Justine. Thank you. I've been speaking with Lee Mars and Justin Zorn, and they are the co authors of Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. And if you want to know about their work, go to their website. It's called astreastrategies.com. And Australia is spelled A-S-T-R-E-A, strategies.com or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3763.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website newdimensions.org and just click the donate button you can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive new dimensions is produced by new dimensions radio in santa rosa california usa our executive producer is justine willis toms our post-production editor is lou judson For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions.